the ability to curate and express deep and complex emotions, to present a self that could be whatever you want it to be, is deeply powerful. And for some reason seems to supersede any psychological feature that might suggest don't post that or might allow you to edit or audit some of the comments. There's something more powerful about this ability to be free to express. That ability is deeply personal, it is political, and it is life-altering in many ways, whether it's positive or negative. That is the voice of Dr. Desmond Patton, Associate Professor, Associate Dean, Lab Director, Columbia University. He joins me today to discuss the ethical use of artificial intelligence. You're listening to the podcast with John C. Lemon. Dr. Patton, welcome. Good afternoon, and thank you for having me. In 1964, New York, Kitty Genovese was stalked and murdered. She was 28 years of age. Her assailant, Winston Mosley, was 29. The bystander effect was coined as a result of that incident. Could you explain what the bystander effect is? Right, so the bystander effect is an idea that there is some critical behavior that is unfolding, uh, whether it is some trauma or some violent event or something that captures our attention, that continuously captures our attention, that should provoke some intervention on on our behalf, and yet we do not intervene. There's something so traumatic, so painful about the experience that we are comfortable with watching it watching it unfold to the fullest extent, but for some reason we are not intervening. And we're seeing the extension, Genevieve's case, in the 21st century with the creation of social media, uh, smartphones with webcams, so forth and so on, where we see individuals videotaping someone being beaten or murdered. They capture this atrocity and yet they're not intervening. Or we're watching violent or aggressive or threatening conversations, video or images on social media platforms, and we're not intervening in that space as well. One of the phenomena associated here that I found interesting is the idea that somebody else will intervene. A test was done. One individual heard someone In distress, that one individual responded to that distress as best as she could. But when there were a number of people in the experiment, they heard that one person in distress. The idea is, well, he heard it, she heard it, they heard it, they will respond. I don't need to. That's also a part of the bystander effect. Could you elaborate on what's going on with us in our humanity? Well, we 
I don't know if you want to call it past the buck, but the the whole idea that, that somebody else will address it. Yeah, I think, you know, this is a really important feature of the bystander effect. And I think there's something about group thinking, group processing that is probably at play here. And that because of the sheer number of people that may be involved, we all believe that someone else will take responsibility. There may also be a level of fear, right? But a fear that captures our attention enough to want to watch and to want to engage, but there being something psychological that does not trigger a response that leads to change. And I think that that is a continuous feature of the bystander effect that continues to play out in emerging technologies where we are watching people be arrested and beaten by police And yet, why doesn't the individual put the camera down? And is the idea that the camera provides some evidence that may lead to change? Or would the change, should the change be put the phone down and intervene? And I think that becomes an important moral question for us in this time as well. You mentioned in a lecture that you gave there on campus at Columbia that young people post intensely personal details about themselves. Could you speak to the idea of why we're posting such personal details about our lives online. There is something really powerful and beautiful about social media that allows people to be fully unadulterated, to express multiple sides of their identity in a way that might be harder to do in person or in real time. And for the communities that I work in, a lot of young people feel depowered, feel as though they lack agency, feel as though they lack resources or or lacking resource. But the ability to curate and express deep and complex emotions to present a self that could be whatever you want it to be is deeply powerful. And for some reason seems to supersede any psychological feature that might suggest don't post that or might allow you to edit or audit some of the comments that or uh, pictures that you may post. There's something more powerful about this ability to be free to express that is more powerful than anything else. And I think particularly in the communities that I work with with young Black and Latinx youth in Chicago, for example, that ability is deeply personal it is political, and it is life-altering in many ways, whether it's positive or negative. I think that provides a lot of insight. Who doesn't want power? Who doesn't want control over their lives? Absolutely. As we are consuming the information that's being placed online to help an individual curate their image, are we also participating in that bystander effect by not alerting authorities, intervening, or reaching out? So I think the question should be about context, right? And whether or not you have the appropriate context to make that decision. And in the work that I do, one of the biggest challenges is interpretability of social media posts. And, you know, we started this work in 2012. One of the earliest things that we found is that we didn't know what people were saying online. We didn't understand the language. We didn't understand the emoji use, the hashtags, the images, none of it. And that was an important finding because we could easily have just taken at face value what we thought we were seeing and made a host of interpretations that would be equally problematic for those young people. When we invited young people to be a part of our lab, 
we hired young people from Chicago to interpret and translate context in those posts. We then were able to get closer to ground truth, meaning the intended meaning of those posts. Understanding meaning in social media posts is extremely hard and I think almost impossible. I think you really have to be in someone's head to fully understand what they were trying to articulate. But I think having young people from the same community at least got us more broad and general understandings. But a major issue was that the language was a mix of African-American vernacular English and hyper-local like, lingo that made it really difficult to be able to interpret. And so this idea of like, should you respond, I think is one that, you, that we need to spend some time with because you could be responding to something that to you looks and feels aggressive or threatening to the young person it was meant to be an expression of grief or trauma. And that will result in different responses. One response could be, let's help the child, let's get them grief support versus let's involve the police. And we all know what happens when we involve the police with young black children. I think that that particular frame is an important one when thinking about whether or not being a bystander is helpful. You put together a team to address this very issue, a team of social workers and data scientists to help to interpret and understand the communications that are going on online. How did you select this team? How did you put this team together? Yeah. And so an important piece of the team is also youth. And so we have social workers, youth and computer scientists. And I'll start with the youth piece because this particular piece has been the most important piece in the work that I do. I met a, a colleague and friend now, his name was Eddie Bocanegra, and Eddie was then the executive director of the YMCA Violence Prevention Program in Chicago. And I had been wanting to study and to interview youth and outreach workers about how they navigate violence on social media. But before he allowed me to meet any of these young people, he grilled me in an interview. I was sitting out front of Leona's restaurant in Hyde Park. And we spent at least an hour and a half on the phone where he asked me very critical questions about my work, about my approach, why I wanted to work with these young people, what would they get out of it. At first, I was very nervous, very concerned. And now I think that right. that conversation was one of the most important things to creating a more ethical research study. I think that I answered those questions correctly because we engaged in a two-year study around violence on social media. He introduced me to young people from his organization. He also made connections to other violence prevention organizations in the city of Chicago. Either had folks involved in the research study as research participants, and then a select few were then asked to join the research lab as research assistants, individuals that wanted to gain additional research experience and had a, and had a deeper interest in this particular area. You know, this part of the work was challenging. And so a lot of people get really excited and appreciate that we involve youth, but we made some mistakes because we weren't prepared initially to support them in the ways that they needed to be supported. Now, these young people, some were either currently or formally getting involved, and we wanted them to look at Excel spreadsheets and to interpret, you know, 200 Twitter posts and to give us feedback in this very regimented way. And that didn't work. <laughs> that didn't work. Right. That did not work for their lives. And so once we decided to get mentors involved from those organizations to support them and to slow it down and to pace it out, we developed a better relationship. The social work students are individuals that have been in my lab at either the University of Michigan or at Columbia University School of Social Work. 
And then uh, since 2015, I have been working with Kathy McEwen, who was a natural language processing expert, and Chifu Chang, who was a computer vision expert, both at Columbia University School of Engineering. Jakaira Barnes. She was known as a shooter, and she was engaged in gang-related activities. At her passing, it was alleged that she was involved in the shooting and potentially death of 17 different individuals. What is it about her life that drew you in, and what was it you were hoping to gain by examining her life? Yeah, thank you for asking that. You know, I I learned about Jakaira from many news articles in April 2014. And I think, you know, the media was particularly captured by her story because she was a young woman, a girl, 17 years old, who was actively involved in a gangster disciple faction in Chicago and was known as a shooter or hitter in that gang. Now, it's important to note that this is a mythology that was carried out on Twitter and on the streets, but Jakaira was never charged with any crime for any of these alleged shootings or killings. So I think it's important to note that we don't know if this is true or not. But the headlines read, you know, gun-toting gang girl, they compared her to the character Little Snoop from The Wire, and that she would shoot first and ask questions later. As an example, as a case study, and as someone interested in violence on social media, I wanted to see how her friends on Twitter will respond to her death. And I wanted to understand how she engaged Twitter and if she used language or any other features on Twitter that would enact violence offline. And that was one of the biggest mistakes in my work because what happened is that I pathologized Jakaira and only saw her in the light that had been developed for me in those articles. And I imbibed ideas of white supremacy in terms of how I framed who she was. What Jakaira did in death was show me someone else. She showed me a much more complicated, a much more nuanced, and a much more diverse individual who loved her family deeply, who felt pain, who felt trauma, and who reacted a lot out of fear because she just wanted to be safe and to keep her family safe. And this is important to know that this young girl experienced more death and trauma than any of us would ever experience. She experienced it often and regular, and it changed her. It changed who she was. Her, when I talked to her mom, her mom saw a complete different person. She said that her face was white after one death. Her face was white and she no longer saw her little girl anymore. And I think that that's something that we do not allow Black people to experience, especially Black children. They don't get to feel pain. They don't get to be in pain. All we focus on is the result of pain. And Jakaira left this complex Twitter diary that we have been able to analyze using artificial intelligence that paints a very nuanced and completely different story than what has been articulated in popular media. How did AI, artificial intelligence, how did it allow you to do that? What artificial intelligence allowed us to do was allowed us to look at large amounts of data, right? So as opposed to just looking at a snapshot of her life, we were able to look at more of her Twitter posts, and then we're able to look at the Twitter posts of individuals that were in her Twitter network, which would be really hard to do without having sophisticated tools that allow you to analyze that amount of data. So overall, we were able to curate data corpus of around 2 million tweets 
that came from around 300 users from Chicago. In addition, it also allowed us to automatically identify categories of conversations and images that are the most dominant in Jakaira's network. And so we focus primarily on three categories or three psychosocial codes of aggression, loss, and substance use, with always the intended goal of being able to help social workers and outreach workers be able to identify digital signs of distress that are oftentimes harder to discern and oftentimes move so quickly that the outreach workers are not able to include it in their intervention work. We have been looking at these posts for since 2014 in various different ways, creating different processes for analyzing the data and for labeling that data. But it also allows us to identify patterns in conversations, right? And so is there any consistency with how words are used, any consistency with how punctuation is used, or emoji that might be indicative of a particular set of codes like aggression or loss or substance use? And so, for example, you know, the praying hands emoji was highly consistent with expressions of grief. And so that we might see that, we may not know that that is a trend in a batch of users as well. Using the AI, it gave you the opportunity to decode, as it were, to paint a different picture of Jakaira beyond the mythology. This is an important piece because it could, so that decoding could be positive if we're able to decode, you know, signs of distress that may predict more aggressive communication, or it could be used negatively to surveil and to monitor Black youth in a way that leads them to jail or prison. And this brings us to your work dealing with AI, the use of AI, as you said, to surveil and to jail versus using therapies. As you mentioned in an article that appeared in People, you want us to respond with therapies and not arrest. How challenging has that been as you're pursuing this? So I think it starts with the questions that you asked of social media data. And as I mentioned, we made mistakes early because we weren't aware of the complexities of language and we didn't see Jakaira and her friends for who they were. And so it doesn't have to be hard, but you have to be open-minded and you need to have an inclusive workforce that can anticipate and interrogate any potential issues or challenges. And one of the biggest, most concerning issues in data science, computer science, algorithmic systems is the lack of diversity and the lack or appreciation for ethical conversations that are difficult conversations, right? And this is best exemplified in the firing of Timnit Gebru, who was uh, one of the leading pioneers in AI ethics at Google, who pushed back against approaches at Google and was then let go for the way in which she pushed back. And I mm -hmm. think that we have a lot to learn from pioneers like Tim and being bold in the decision-making processes that we engage in, how we look at data and who's included in that process. So with that in mind, you formed a coalition. Alongside the artificial intelligence, you use pastors from Harlem, people who were previously incarcerated, youth that were involved in gang activity. Tell me about putting this coalition together. Yeah, so in the spring and summer, um, I started a new project with a pastor from Harlem and my colleague, Kathy Shear, who is a psychiatrist in the School of Social Work at Columbia. 
and it's Pastor Johnny Green. And Pastor Johnny Green has been, he and other pastors have been supporting their parishioners with processing complicated grief, but they ran up against a capacity issue, right? They could only get so far without additional training and support in that area. So we applied for a Columbia World Projects grant to be able to provide digital tools for what we call helpers, Harlem pastors and other Harlem residents, to be able to do a number of things, to receive additional training in complicated grief, which my colleague Kathy Shear is an expert in, to be able to connect and relate to one another as they also process their own complicated grief. And then bringing it back to artificial intelligence, we have developed a web-based interface to collect diaries of how these pastors have been experiencing complicated grief in their lives and the lives of others so that we can then use artificial intelligence to identify some of those signals in those diaries and the, with the overarching goal of being able to create a, a training program for Harlem residents and for social workers and create better relationships between the School of Social Work in Harlem so that we can help people identify these signals in digital spaces. Because so much is happening on social media, but our efforts, our training efforts, our tools are not being placed in the digital environment as well. We're seeing that we absolutely need folks to be involved in the digital environment as well. So that's where we are. We will begin this work in the new year. You use the term black digital grief. Could you give me a little context to what you mean by black digital grief? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty simple in that I'm interested in the expressions of grief by black folks. And what I've learned in my studies is that the ways in which Black folks grieve is particularly nuanced and cultural, right? And that in some of the narratives that we see in both online and offline spaces is this need to push on, to get through that grief at any means necessary, oftentimes not treating it in a traditional way, but to uh, enact some survival techniques so that you can continue living in a racist society. And so the ways in which these expressions show up on social media may not look or sound the ways which we've been trained to think about grief, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, a young black male may post a lyric from a drill music song that may have curse words in it, that may feel on the face tough or hard, but that posting behavior, that rap lyric, that rap artist, are all in the embodiment of how this young individual is expressing this grief in a particular moment. But to the untrained eye, you may completely miss that experience and identify that as a signal of grief. And so what we want to do is be able to understand it as a phenomena, be able to understand it within the context of social media and be able to support Black folk who are leveraging social media and other digital tools to deal with their grief. And in January, you're launching this program. So the Safe Lab has been studying this for quite some time, but this new work that includes the past in Harlem and our colleague Kathy Sheeran from Psychiatry and Columbia Social Work, this will start in the new year. Dr. Patton, thank you for dropping by for today's conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Desmond Patton, Associate Professor, Associate Dean, Lab Director, Columbia University. For additional information on lab research and artificial intelligence, visit DesmondUptonPatton.com. 
That's our podcast for today. I'm John C. Lemon. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time. Thank you.